This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramau Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm here today with Alex Birchmore to talk about his new book, New Export China, Translations Across Time and Place in Contemporary Chinese Porcelain Art. Welcome to New Books, Alex, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks. I'm really happy to talk about the book and to talk with you. Great. So we always start at the beginning with your beginning. So how did you come to be an art historian and specifically a specialist of Chinese art? I Well, I initially wanted to be an artist. So I actually studied at art school first. I wanted to be what was visual arts is what it's called or what it was called in the degree I did. And um, I majored in life drawing and printmaking. So it wasn't even ceramics at first. It was um, completely different. So I did that for a few years. And then I sort of drifted during that time away, I suppose, from the actual making of things. I think I became slightly disillusioned because it's it, it kind of became clear to me that it's quite difficult to be a successful artist or to make it your career. So I drifted more towards the history side of things, which also appealed to me. Um, it was something I very much enjoyed. I liked the, the act of writing and um, thinking about art in addition to making art. So I drifted more towards that. I kind of pursued that a little further. I had a moment where I was on the fence of whether I wanted to pursue curating or whether I wanted to go continue down the art history path. And then again, um, I'm not sure what propelled me. I mean, I guess it was at that point passion that kind of propelled me towards art history more than anything else. Um, I also, I initially started, my focus was more on um, American art. In fact, American abstract expressionist art, which I know is quite a, uh, uh, maybe a archetypal thing for someone to study, but uh, I looked at that and I was very interested in the kind of material aspects of the painting techniques that were used uh, and how they related to gender. In fact, so I was quite interested in materials and gender and how media and making related to people expressing their identity, artists expressing their identity, how that was perceived in the media and how it was perceived by critics. So I studied that for a while mainly because there weren't many opportunities to study Asian art. But as soon as I came across those opportunities, when I went into postgrad degrees, I took advantage of them. So I studied Southeast Asian art, and then I studied Chinese art. And Chinese art was the one, I I guess, that really spoke to me, I suppose, just because it's such a a huge history. There's so much there to deal with. and, And it's so, I guess it's the in a way, the kind of the allure of something which was so different to what I was used to, but also had some of those connections with the things that I was used to. So um, I'd read about the abstract expressionist artists being interested in calligraphy and interested mm. in ink and things like that. So I kind of wanted to dive into that. Um, but then going into ceramics, I think it was, I don't know, I was, I, I'd sort of dabbled in making ceramics. Um, 
and then I kind of, I don't know, I felt drawn to thinking about identity and materiality. It seems like a logical medium to choose because it's such a close connection between the making and the meaning. Um, so I dove into that. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship, which took me to China. So I lived mm. there for a year, studied the language, and I guess that cemented my interest in a way. And then I, I continued to pursue it and did my doctorate. And uh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> But there's such a strong through line with what you're, you know, as you were describing, you know, the, I don't want to say winding, but the, you know, the, the how you pursue different interests and they all sort of, you know, coalesce at this point. It's such a strong through line of making mm. <laughs> through what you were talking about that really, I mean, that was what struck me so much about your book, the emphasis on making and the meanings of making and how that really, you know, feeds into the art itself. Um, so mm. thank you for that. Um, <laughs> as you're, as we're talking about, you know, um, things coming together. I'm curious to know how this book came together. Um, you say at the end that you first started this project in 2013 as part of your graduate student work, but that it changed, and I'll quote here, uh, from a narrow, relatively convention-bound focus to a more expansive and broadly inclusive perspective on contemporary porcelain art over time. So that's quite a big transformation. Um, could you give listeners a little bit of a sense of that? How did this project change over time? Yeah. So what I was referring to there was initially I was really interested in iconography and I had hmm. this, <laughs> this kind of ambition that I would um, map out the different motifs and uh, designs that contemporary artists were using. And I would trace, I guess, a genealogy of their history and work out why they were using specific motifs. But as I came to do that, I sort of came to realize that it would be quite dry and it would be very semiotically focused, I guess because it was it was moving away from the material stuff that really interested me, hmm. which I didn't kind of consciously realize at the time, but looking back, that's probably what it was. But initially it was, yeah, very iconographically focused. And then I sort of started moving away from that and just thinking about, I guess, bigger questions of why ceramics or why porcelain why this specific material, um, why are contemporary artists choosing to use something which is so tradition-bound in many people's eyes, and and so, in a way, a-contemporary or anti-contemporary, something which people associate mostly with the past or associate with even with everyday life or very vernacular ways of doing things. And I, I guess I became fascinated by that, and it fed into the book. And then as I continued studying uh, their art over time, and I spoke with them, and especially after I spent more time in China, I not only was interested in why they chose porcelain, but also why they went to China to hmm. to work in the the what was formerly the so-called porcelain capital of Jingdezhen, and what drew them there, and what I guess kept them there, how they got there, um, how that affected the meanings of their work how they were perhaps influenced by things like history, the politics of that that production process, the politics of the history, uh, thinking more about porcelain itself as a, a traveling material, a traveling medium, how that was reflected in, in the movements of the artists across the world. So yeah, it, it was uh, very much a, a broadening out, I guess, from an initially quite yeah narrow focus on the iconographies out towards the broader contexts in which those iconographies were um being used. Mm, that was actually a very, I feel a very um, broad and all encompassing, all encompassing description of the book itself. <laughs> actually, mm. you just touched <laughs> on a lot of the different um, points that we're going to talk about <laughs> further in our conversation. <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, with that, let's dive a little bit deeper into the book itself. Um, and I want to start with discard of the the, the mm. artwork that you open the book with. Um, so you talk about this artwork and there are photographs of it. Um, and this is uh, an installation of an ex it's an excavated lawn filled with an assortment of household items made out of porcelain. Um, and I'm not doing it justice. You really, dear listener, please look <laughs> at the photographs. <laughs> that, uh, that, that description again does not do it justice. Um, but you write that this installation encapsulates the artistic phenomenon identified and studied in this book, which is New Export China. So could you unpack that term a little bit? What is New Export China and what do listeners, you know, what do you want to highlight for listeners about it? Yeah, 
I get asked that a lot, I guess, because I put it on the cover of the book. So I have to <laughs> defend what it means. Um, yeah, I mean, it was the initially it was the history of export because mm. I found that all the artists I looked at, the main four that I cover in the book, as well as the the um, I guess the additional case studies that I talk about and others that I didn't get a chance to write about in the book, but have written about elsewhere, they all shared this fascination with the history of export. So it wasn't so much the history of imperial porcelain or the history of everyday porcelain in China. It was the history of export porcelain quite specifically mm. and how it traveled overseas. So that became to me quite a central aspect of what I was doing. Um, so it's sort of a play on words, I guess. So the, the first immediate meaning would be that it's a new form of export China. It's a new form of export porcelain because most of these works uh, are seen overseas. They're generally created for overseas, as in outside of China, overseas audiences and viewers. They, they're very much within the vocabulary of contemporary global art, uh, kind of like the original export China. Mm. But they're, um, the different words within the uh, definition as well, I, I linked them to different aspects of the art. So it was very much new, not only because it was uh, recently made or it was current, but also because it it definitively links to current concerns, current um, mm. anxieties, uh, current things that people are thinking about and dealing with. Export, again, because it's a lot of it's created in China and then exported outside of China, or um, the artists themselves have moved from China overseas or various different uh, travels. It's very linked with mobility and motion. Mm. And then China, playing on that quite old uh, pun of China the material and China the country, because most of the artists also draw the link between porcelain and Chinese culture and the country of China, the national identity of China. So each of the uh, words within the, the general um, term that I've kind of used has a meaning in my mind that links to the, the different aspects of the art. And then I used Liu Jianghua's discard as a work that I felt uh, very much summed up those different qualities, which is why I chose mm. it to start the book, because he's got the... Um, the new in terms of the the everyday commodities that he's recreated in porcelain, which are linked with um, ideas of uh, mass consumption, uh, conspicuous consumption, the kind of excess of things that we have surrounding mm. ourselves. Uh, and he counterpoints those with reproduction, uh, historic vases, blue and white vases and things like that. In these two, it is quite, quite hard to describe without seeing it, but in these two um, excavated pits, outside the uh, Sino-Italia uh, Design Center in Shanghai. Um, one of them filled with the reproductions and one of them filled with the historic reproductions and one of them filled with the, I guess, contemporary reproductions. Mm. Uh, so it has the new, it also has the export, the, the historic reproductions mostly are reproducing export wares. It has the, the the China aspect, both in the material as well as in the location, I suppose, but also in the the contemporary associations of China with that mass production, which he's explored in other works too. Um, and it also, I mean, it links with other things in the book too, which I shouldn't delve into too much just yet, but, um, yeah, it was those, it was the different kind of inflections of those terms, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about China. Um, just because as you say, we're, we are going to dive into it, but, um, <laughs> it is something you touched on in the introduction, um, that, you know, there's a strong, um, assumption maybe that the term Chinese art refers to a very specific type of artist. Um, and, you know, some of the artists you touch on in the book don't quite conform to that, or this is a category that these artists are, you know, very consciously playing with <laughs> their own position as a Chinese mm. artist and what that means. Um, and we will get into that, especially with the, the later chapters, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this here. You know, what does new export China sort of you know, reveal or how should it inform how we think about, you know, quote, <laughs> Chinese art? Mm. Yeah, that was the, I guess, the underlying ambition. Mm. One of the ambitions of the book was to propose a different way of thinking about not only Chinese art, but I mean, all forms, <laughs> that's very ambitious, but, but all forms of art <laughs> that are tied to national identity, but specifically about Chinese art, I sort of felt there's a, an assumption or there has been an assumption that it's made by Chinese artists in mm. China using Chinese materials for Chinese people to see. And I sort of felt, well, a lot of the artists that are called Chinese, they don't live in China. They might not necessarily 
make art about China. They might not be using Chinese materials. They might not be representing Chinese themes. So what is it exactly that makes it Chinese art? And is there is there a singular Chinese art or are there multiple different forms of, of Chinese arts that exist in various different contexts? Um, so there's people like Ai Weiwei, who I'm sure everyone is familiar with. He's lived in China. He's lived in New York. He's lived in Germany. He's lived in lots of different places. Uh, Liu Jianhua is the only one of the four who's actually lived in China, but mm. his work tends to deal with much more global concerns. It's not necessarily made of Chinese things for Chinese people or drawing on Chinese traditions. The other two artists from the later chapters, Xin Yinghou and A Xian. Xin Yinghou lives in New York. She's lived in Canada. She was born mm. in Hong Kong. So her Chinese identity has always, I suppose, been at sort of a remove from the mainland. And then A Xian lives here in Australia, in Sydney, moved over about 30 years ago. Um, and again, he's, I, I mean, it's often called diasporic Chinese identity or overseas Chinese identity, but it's it's really a, a kind of uh, a range of different things, which, which vary very much by individual circumstances they do by anything else. So I suppose my ambition was to try and tap into that that variety and diversity mm. and broaden the expectation of what constitutes Chinese art or what constitutes any form of national art really that's that's tied to that or at least to, to trouble some of the links between mm. certain materials like porcelain and um, or things like lacquer and jade and and aspects of Chinese identity or, or projections of cultural identity to try and work my way into into the interstices between some of those things and, and pry them apart I suppose as a way mm. of thinking more I don't know deeply and complexly about how those things are linked together. You just, um, you outlined sort of the four, you know, main artists that you focus on as, as this book mm. was coming together or as this project was coming together, um, were there other artists you considered including, or how did, how did you land on these, um, these four? Yeah, there were, I mean, Tai Guo Jiang was one who I almost included. I've written about mm. his works because he's worked a lot, of course, with porcelain as well. Um, in the end, though, and Guan Wei is another artist here in Australia who I mentioned briefly, mm. but um, I didn't talk about his work in depth. But I, I settled on those four because I felt that they linked to, they quite clearly, for my purposes, linked to the different ways of looking at porcelain and dealing with porcelain and working with it that I wanted to highlight, as well as some of those experiences. So I had Ai Weiwei, who came at it from a very connoisseurial standpoint. He's a collector as well as being an artist. He came at it from a way in which he was very interested in the history of porcelain. He was interested in the the associations with Chinese heritage. Um, he was very into, or is very into, mass installations of porcelain, dealing with uh, antique pieces or potentially reproduction antique pieces. And then there was Liu Jianhua, who who trained in Jingdezhen in the 70s, at I guess the tail end of the, the porcelain industry there, in one mm. of the factories. So he was kind of the assembly line ceramicist, the, the 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 artist who trained in something which is definitely not considered art making. I think he was predominantly making sculptures, but he would have trained to make things like tableware as well. Mm. And that was something which became a tension in his career that I found very interesting. He's pretty much one of the only artists who's got that, one of the only Chinese artists who has that kind of factory heritage. Um, so I kind of had to include him and his work is incredibly interesting too. I chose Sinning Ho because she also has training in ceramics, but it's more of a studio ceramics training. Mm. So she went over to um, Canada and the US and she trained with people like Walter Ostrom. Um, she's now at the City University of New York. So she's also a professor in addition to being a ceramicist. So she brought the kind of academic or, or European tradition inflected with the Chinese aspects or, or inflected with a desire to explore her heritage which I found contrasted and linked nicely with Liu Jianhua. And then A Xian, sort of like Ai Weiwei, mm. has, or he was, he was self. So the difference, I guess, between Ai Weiwei and A Xian is that Ai Weiwei doesn't really make his own ceramics. He did make a, a little owl sculpture that I talk about a little, many, many years ago, decades ago, in the 70s, in fact. But in terms of his other pieces, he generally doesn't make them. A Xian started out wanting to make them, and he taught himself uh, some kind of rudiments of ceramics. He built a kiln in his backyard. He uh, had a residency at 
at an art school in Sydney where he worked with students there and he he used their resources to make some of his first pieces. Mm. And then he shifted away to working more collaboratively with artisans because they were obviously better trained to achieve what he wanted to achieve. But he was drawn to the medium like Ai Weiwei by its its cultural associations, but also by its material associations, which I found quite interesting. Mm. Uh, so he was working with plaster at the time and he wanted something that was similar to plaster in terms of its capabilities so that he could use to mold things uh, and, and it could change from a fluid state to a, a solid state. But he didn't like the the kind of clinical whiteness of plaster or the, the sterility of it. And he wanted something that was more tactile and um, more alluring in terms of material sense. So it was the, yeah, it was the links between, I mean, the four chapters of the book cover production, history, uh, identity, I suppose, and material. And then the four artists also link with those concepts as well. They just, yeah, they seemed like a perfect fit in terms of the, the themes that I wanted to get across. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm, they do all fit, really, as, as you just sort of laid, out, laid that out, they do fit <laughs> remarkably well. <laughs> um, you touched on it there and sort of the different forms of production. So that brings us really beautifully into chapter one, porcelain production. Mm. Um, and in this chapter, you sort of, you know, you touch on how artists are able to, with porcelain, to create in multiples <laughs> with speed and efficiency. So with porcelain, artists can have their works manufactured, um, you know, by teams of artisans, you know, other people. Um, and this is only really made possible because, you know, so many artists discussed in the book either work out of or are in some way connected to um, the porcelain capital, um, Jing Zhejun. So, you know, this place will come up and it does come up time and time again in the book. So I'm hoping you could touch on this a little bit, um, you know, for historians, Jing Zhejun really means something, you know, very specific and very different mm. from what it is today. Um, so thinking of it as a place, you know, today, what is so, I don't know how to put it special, I guess, about Jing Zhejun today that makes the creation of, you know, large scale works possible? Mm. Yeah, it pops up over and over in the book. I almost thought of it as kind of a fifth character, mm. I guess, in the cast of, of characters in the book, um, or at least a, a setting that they've all passed through at some point. But yeah, I mean, the history of Jing Zhejun goes back, you know, depending how you date it, at least, I guess, a thousand years as, as a center of porcelain production. Um, and it's linked very much with both export porcelain, especially blue and white, as well as with imperial porcelain, porcelain for the court and for the emperor. Mm. Um, there's been sort of a, a resurgence of interest in Jing Zhejun lately, well, in English language publications anyway, with, with a lot of books coming out that cover that history. And some of them touch a bit on the contemporary identity of it too. Uh, it's had its ups and downs, like I guess like any industrial center over the centuries, depending very much on cultural change, historical change, different forms of patronage over the over the uh, the decades and centuries. But in terms of the contemporary identity, it's changed a lot. But I mean, it depends so much on that history and draws on that history. Mm. And in a way, I guess one of the ironies is that porcelain probably isn't even the main industry in the town. I think it's something like helicopters or something. It's the, the main thing they produce <laughs> that um, actually earns them the most money. But porcelain is the thing that they're associated with. And it's become, because of that history, it's become a, almost like a, a, a pilgrimage um, mm. for ceramicists to go there and spend a little bit of time there. And this whole industry has grown up, which I talk about a bit in the book, 
around artist residencies where um, people have sensed that that opening, that opportunity to uh, facilitate those trips and to help people get in touch with local artisans. It's often young artists, uh, young designers overseas as well as Chinese. There's a, mm. a whole crowd of so-called Tinglejian drifters in China who go there for their obligatory two or three weeks or two or three months in one of the residency um, institutions and they make a, a series and they work with with the locals. Uh, it had a really interesting shift. So it, it, it became wrapped up with um, state production in the 50s mm. and 60s, which uh, kept it afloat for a little while after the, the turmoils of the early decades of the century. Uh, and then in the 90s, with the move toward a more market-oriented economy, there was a lot of struggle. A lot of the state-owned factories were closed. They were sort of um, left to their own devices and that's when things like the reproduction industry, historical reproductions really took off, which again is something that people have been doing for centuries in Jingdezhen, mm. but they identified that market need. Um, and it grew up very much alongside that that um, residency uh, scene in the 90s and the 2000s. And that's something that Ai Weiwei and Liu Jianghua, as well as the other artists, have engaged with a lot in their work mm. because um, it helps them achieve what they want to achieve. Uh, and I guess, yeah, the other aspect is is that it does, Ding uh, Zhen does help people achieve what they want to achieve. So things like Ai Weiwei's sunflower seeds, for example, probably couldn't have been produced for the same cost or in the same time anywhere else in the world except here, because there's a pool of readily available labor with the skills needed. There's all the materials that you'd need. Um, there's all the infrastructure, all the reasons why it became uh, a center for the production of porcelain a thousand years ago were the reasons, I guess, why uh, contemporary artists are going there now to use all these resources to make their work. Uh, but it's also, I mean, it's also a, a really vibrant, lively center of artistic innovation as well, because you have all these people coming here from all different parts of the world. And you have all these people internally in China coming here to kind of try out new things, to mm. um, engage with the history of the place, has a certain romance about it. It's 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 kind of a mix of um, romantic visions of the past or visions of, I guess, an imperial China that people have, have built up in their heads as this, this uh, aspect of their heritage. But also, on the other end of the scale, I suppose the, the crass commercializable aspects of it where people looking to make a lot of money or people looking to, um, yeah, take advantage of some of the, the uh, more entrepreneurial or enterprising aspects of the city. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a hotspot, I suppose, for for people with creative ideas or entrepreneurial ideas coming together. Mm -hmm. the, um, I think you get into this in the fourth chapter of the book. The, you talk a little bit about, um, especially, I guess, diasporic artists coming to or coming back to Jingdezhen and sort of being, you know, with that romantic mm -hmm. vision you just outlined as, you know, this historic place, that ideal, and then it being shattered, I guess, <laughs> by the... Um, or, you know, tarnished, um, if we're thinking of a different material, <laughs> tarnished a little bit by the sort of, yeah, the reality of it, um, the commercialization of it. Um, yeah, everything else that goes into, um, you know, enabling what then in turn allows these artists to make their their art possible. So there's a there's a very interesting tension there. Yeah, um, Asien and Xinying Ho specifically, as the two who lived outside of China, well, I mean, for Xinying, when she went to Jingdezhen in the mid-90s, it was the first time she'd actually been to the mainland because she grew up in mm. Hong Kong uh, and she left in um, 89 or 90 when it was still, well, it was it was separate, essentially. Mm. Um, so she'd never really been to the mainland. So for her, it was, she envisioned, or she's written that she envisioned, and she told me when we spoke that she envisioned this this homecoming where she would kind of, she would go back and she'd have this feeling, I suppose, of a missing piece falling into place and everyone would be welcoming her with open arms and she would gain a new understanding of her grandparents who came from um, Guangzhou and a new understanding of, of of her own heritage. But when she got there, she, she was very disillusioned because she discovered that um, not only could no one understand her or she couldn't understand anyone else because they spoke a different dialect to um, the one that she spoke, but also they, they saw her because she was with people like Walter Ostrom, they saw her as a foreigner, so they didn't mm. really welcome her with open arms they just kind of treated her in the way that they would treat any other visiting foreign ceramicists so she was very disillusioned 
Um, and I think over time, obviously, she came to terms with it and sort of came to realize the the what I was talking about before, the, the kind of multiplicity of cultural identity and the way in which it is so much inflected by different aspects of individual experience and how there are so many different um, composite fragments that go into making it up. And it fed into her work as well, where she combines these different iconographies and mm. these different forms into these composite sculptures that, that are, I, I suppose, materially expressive of that experience of just piecing things together. Um, and Asien too, although he, he grew up in mainland China in Beijing, um, and he'd taken trips down down south in various places, uh, he again came to Sydney in uh, 1990 after the Tiananmen incident. Um, and he was here for, again, in the mid-90s. It was it, Coincidentally, it was the same year that they both went to Jingzhen, mm. but uh, their paths didn't cross, or not that they were aware of. I've, I've asked them both, and that neither of them remembers meeting the other. Um, I think Ai Weiwei was in the city in the same year too, 96, I think. It was something was in the air, I suppose, that everyone wanted to go to Jingzhen. But um, he went back there too, mostly because he uh, wanted to build on his self-taught uh, use of ceramics and gain some experience from people who knew what they were doing, I guess. Um, he's always quite deprecating about his abilities as a ceramicist. Uh, mm. And he also wanted to to work with them to make some pieces. And he ended up going back multiple times with funding from various sources. But again, when he went back uh, in Australia, both before and after he went, he built up this this artistic mission almost that he wanted to, he felt that contemporary artists weren't using traditional materials or things like ceramics and that kind of stuff as much as they could. He thought they were del delving too much into the conceptualist side of things and that they were losing touch with some aspect of their heritage. And he felt this particularly of Chinese artists. So he, he wrote and spoke at length about how they were um, losing treasures or they'd they'd forgotten aspects of their past and that there was a need to kind of gather these up a need to revive them for the for the 21st century to bring them back into the contemporary so he had almost a, a missionary purpose when he went back mm. to to bring back some of those materials and share them with audiences and show that they could be used in a contemporary way uh, but again I, I suppose what he found was that uh, he encountered a lot of um indifference from the artisans mm. there or they they weren't perhaps quite as passionate about his his mission as he he was himself they were much more as they would be goal oriented and uh, work oriented so they really just were doing what they were commissioned to do they would take the money to do that if they thought it was odd which they did so he creates these uh, body casts and busts mm. and there was a lot of tension because they thought he was a little strange for having all these kind of naked women <laughs> um casts and wanting to to work with local models and things like that, which it eased over in the end when they kind of understood. But um, yeah, I think he found that there wasn't quite as much of a meeting of the minds as he'd hoped, and they just thought he was a little, a little perhaps idiosyncratic. But um, again, he he came to think about perhaps the the tension between those different aspects of identity and the different ways of envisioning Chinese identity and Chineseness. Yep. Mm. I'm so glad you brought up interviews because this was something I wanted to ask about. Uh, but this is taking us a little bit away from chapters one and two, but um, <laughs> it seems like a good place to mention it. Um, yeah, because when I was looking through sort of the you know the back of the book, <laughs> looking through the footnotes, um, I did notice the interviews and you know how some of them were conducted sort of pre-pandemic and some were post-pandemic. Um, and I'm just curious about how they sort of fit into your project as a whole or how they you know shaped mm. how you thought about the the artist that's sort of a big open question um but is there anything about you know the interviews or the process of interviewing for you that you found particularly productive with this project yeah i mean i've always liked speaking with artists i guess mm. it's because i wanted to be an artist so um i always like talking to them about what they wanted to achieve or uh how they feel about their work because it, it offers they're often they they're, they often don't pick up on everything mm. in their work which is fine but um it's good to understand their experience of it um so the project began really with conversations with Arsien, who i had the good fortune of meeting because my supervisor my phd supervisor who was also my um ma supervisor before that 
she was good friends or mm. is good friends with Bastian. So she introduced me and I had the opportunity to talk with him a lot. And I saw some of his works when they were briefly passing through Adelaide in, in South Australia. Um, and then when I when I went to China, he happened to be there at the same time. Mm. So we went to a lot of markets together uh, and all the, all the while talking to me about his work. We went to his studio. It was really, really valuable insight into um, the thinking that went behind the thought behind his work, as well as the process, the long process of piecing together these things, these these little finds that he'd find in, in Beijing's markets and um, his relations with uh, artisans as well. So he was the first one, the first mm. of the four artists who I really engaged with and spoke with at length. And then Xinying Ho, I got some funding to invite her over to Australia. It was her first time in Australia, in fact, so she was, mm. was great fun for her. But she came to, I was in Canberra at that time, um, and she came over and we spoke at length again about her work, which was very, very fascinating again. And that was what showed me the link with um, her personal history and her family mm. history and how how important that was, because that hadn't really come across to me just by looking at uh, images of the work. It hadn't really sunk in for me how important that was to the work. Uh, and also the iconographies that she uses, they're often very highly encoded with all these different dimensions of meaning that I really wouldn't have had any idea about if I hadn't have spoken to her. So that was something that very much mm. unlocked that for me. So they were they were the two pre-pandemic um, interviews that I had the chance to, to speak with them. Because I was just, in my mind, a, a kind of lowly PhD candidate, I didn't even approach <laughs> Ai Weiwei and uh, Liu Jianhua because I thought I would never have the opportunity to talk to them at that time. But um, once I had the contract for the book in place, which happened around the start of the pandemic, ironically, mm. gave me a lot of time to focus on writing it, which I, which I guess was good. Um, then I kind of worked up the courage to approach them and I had the opportunity to talk to, to talk to them. I found them both very generous and very happy to mm. talk to me. Um, but yeah, the, the engagement with their work. So with Asien and Sinning, it was from the start very interpersonal and very kind of intersubjective, I guess. It was very linked to my friendship with them, my conversations with them. Mm. I think that inflected my understanding of their work. And then with Ai Weiwei and Liu Jianhua, it was more textually focused. It was more my engagement with the work myself, reading interviews that they'd given, published statements. And then when I had the chance to talk to them, uh, it was a great way to to um, draw together some things that I've missed, to um, piece together the, the dots, I guess, and test some of my theories out mm. on them, which didn't always go down as well as I'd perhaps hoped. Um, but it was a good, yeah, it was a good way to kind of test those out, to, to learn a bit more about them, to learn a bit more about some of the questions I had. I had lots of questions that I'd noted down over the past couple of years and throughout my my um, doctoral candidature that I wanted to to ask them one day and I, I'd hoped I'd one day be able to. And I did, and I got some really interesting answers, which, mm. which shaped then how I changed some of the aspects of the book and how I um, worked in some new new directions with um, some of the discussion of works that were, were quite familiar to me, but um, had shed these new dimensions. But uh, overall, yeah, the artist conversations were really central to how I went about doing things and just the the tension between what they said, mm. what other people said, what I thought, and I suppose what the work said as well, and trying to work out a way to navigate all those different, um, different ways of looking at things. Mm -hmm. I think that tension... Actually, I mean, that's something you explore quite explicitly in your discussion of Ai Weiwei's um, dropping a Han dynasty urn, which mm. I'll use to take us into chapter two, <laughs> which <laughs> looks at um, how, you know, these works um, engage with history. And this is sort of, you know, you, you um, this is one of the big case studies um, of this chapter in particular. So I'll do a very poor job of describing the art here. Uh, this is a series of monochrome photographic prints. Um, in the first, um, I is photographed holding an urn. In the second, the urn he's moved his hands apart and the urn is falling. And then in the third, the urn is in pieces. Um, and it's very simple, but as you you know, you write in the book that this piece has inspired several readings um, as a document of a destructive act, a self-portrait of the artist as iconoclast, and as an illustration of an irreverent attitude towards the past and to contemporary political authoritarianism. I'm quoting from the book there. Um, so there's a really 
complicated history of assessing this artwork, which is made all the more complicated by the artist himself, <laughs> um, uh, you know, having, you know, his own opinions on it. Um, but stepping back from that, is there something that you would say, you know, viewers maybe of this artwork have, you know, maybe missed, or is there a particular interpretation um, that you find um, most interesting to think through with regards to this particular piece? Hmm. I guess, I mean, the thing that I think a lot of people miss or that people perhaps don't know is the original um, publication of the artwork in, in mm. one of the three books that Ai Weiwei, along with Su Bing and others, released in the early to mid-90s, the black book, and uh, the black cover book and the white cover book and the grey cover book. Um, and it was originally in there. So it had quite a... And they were circulated with family and friends of the artist, with other artists throughout the kind of, I suppose, the underground of the contemporary Chinese art scene. So it would have been, I think what people don't realize is that it would have been initially seen by quite a small group of people mm. on a on the page of a book alongside translations of um, overseas texts and alongside other works by other artists and um, artist statements. Because, of course, now we mostly see it blown up on the wall of a gallery uh, and it's associated so much with that that kind of mythology of Ai Weiwei as this this dissident artist who um, makes works that always question the government. And another aspect being that the work at the time wasn't intended to be a question of the government at all. It wasn't intended to have any commentary on those kinds of things. He hadn't really discovered his his activist uh, leanings in the in the mid nineties. He was still, I suppose, discovering himself because he'd just come back from about twelve years in New York, I think, back mm. to Beijing. Um, and he was living with his parents again, which I imagine must have been uh, an interesting thing. And he was um, traveling around the markets, much like Asien does today and other artists, uh, with his brother, one of his brothers, who who is a connoisseur and, and educated him in how to, um, uh, how to identify reproduction pieces, how to identify different characteristics of different dynasties of ceramics. So it was, he was very much in that mind frame of... Um, building up connections, building up networks, reconnecting with aspects of his past and his family and his heritage that um, he hadn't been around for been around for a while, for 12 years, but also coming to terms with the transformations of the city because he left Beijing mm. in the early 80s and he returned in the early 90s. And as a lot of people, I'm sure, listening to this know, a, a lot of stuff happened in that decade and the city would have been pretty much unrecognizable for him. So I think initially the work would have been more about uh, he's written and he's he's said in interviews and when when I spoke to him he said that the work was really just a kind of joke but um, he says that another thing about Ai Weiwei is that he tends to I think he likes to uh, keep people guessing a lot or he likes to kind of um, play on people's assumptions when they're thinking about his work so he said a lot that this work as well as others was primarily a, a joke or it was something. Or a way to test a camera. There's something else that he said. A way to test his mm. his brother's new camera um, to see how well it could capture the um, the urn moving through space. And he's written that this was actually the second one that he dropped. So there's another one where it didn't work quite so well. So he just grabbed another hand in the urn and um, dropped it on the floor. Uh, but at the time, yeah, it was it was linked with with his sense of how some of those things were being, I suppose, in his mind, destroyed mm. or uh, how the past was being changed so rapidly, things were being redeveloped. There was so much destruction and construction going on in Beijing um, in a way with the musealization and the commercialization of things like the Han Dynasty and Han Dynasty urns and jars. Um, the use of the word urn was a deliberate mm. tactic as well. It's technically not an urn. It's a grain jar, which he knows very well, and he's written about <laughs> but, um, urn for um, a lot of people conjures these these images of history and images of antiquity and things like that. Uh, and then, of course, when he gained fame um, in the 2000s for other works, this one was sort of rediscovered and, mm. and in a way, um, retconned, I guess, as this early statement of his his burgeoning identity as a dissident. But, but I felt it was so interesting to kind of place it back within that context where it would have initially circulated and Put that up against how it circulates now and, and think about um yeah how, how those different visions of him as an artist affect these different understandings of the work mm -hmm. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mm-hmm. As a reader, I mean, I very much enjoyed the, the extremely nuanced um, investigation <laughs> of all of what you described there. It, uh, Yeah, I found it fascinating. Um, as, as you say, it is intentionally ambiguous, um, but the mm. history behind it um, is just fascinating. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> Moving from Ai Weiwei, um, I want to move us towards the end of your book. Um, and chapter three, actually, you know, it talks... The, uh, porcelain Renaissance. It looks at um, Sining Ho's work and Asien's work, who we've already touched on a little bit. Um, mm. And you know, they both, as you've we've spoken about, they both use porcelain as a vehicle for um, rediscovering and reconstructing Chineseness. Um, both of which, you know, both artists are very much very consciously playing with this. Um, so, but because we've talked a little bit about them already, I'm curious, is there a particular piece of, you know, their artwork, one of their artworks that you really want to highlight here? I know you've already touched on um, Asien's busts, but is there a particular bust or maybe a different art piece that you think really encapsulates their rediscovery of Chineseness? Hmm, that's a good question. I suppose of the Two, uh, I mean, Asian's busts, they're really mm. fascinating on an individual level. They kind of work best on a collective level. So um, for people who not who aren't familiar with his practice, uh, he's very known here in Australia and overseas for making these busts, um, bust portraits, usually of family and friends, but also of sometimes of anonymous models. And he's created these in many different materials in various series o- over the years. So there's porcelain, there's bronze, uh, uh, he's used things like jade, oxbone inlay, various things. Uh, the porcelain ones were the first ones, his China China series that he started in 98 and then finished around about 2004. And there's 80 busts in the series created in various different contexts, um, which which sort of, I mean, when they're seen en masse, it's quite mm. overwhelming and incredible because it's this almost a community of these, these people. Um, but I guess to, to dial down to the, the individual busts, the ones that I l- love most of, of the 80 are the 10 that he created himself in Sydney, which ironically are the ones that he doesn't, he said that he doesn't like because he thinks they were kind of um, failed experiments or he's not happy with his, his level of artistry that he achieved or uh, he doesn't think they're quite as, uh, uh, as um, virtuosic as some of the later ones, which is perhaps true. Because the later ones were made by people who were very skilled in what they were doing, they have a lot more polish. But I don't know. There's something about the first ten that really speaks to me, and I think it's because the models that he used were his his partner, his mm. brother, uh, and then an anonymous student of the Sydney College of the Arts where he made them. He's also worked with his father, with um, various other people. But there was something about the the way that it was almost it was so tender the way that the porcelain mm. had captured the features of the models um and then the the divide between the the kind of i guess the 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 intimacy of the clay and the way it had captured their features and their expression and their personalities and then the the gloss of the glaze on top and the way that it played into the decoration the the uh, engagement between the two in the first 10 busts there was a lot more i felt a lot more engagement between the motifs that he chose mm. and the people who were represented than they were in some of the later ones. And then there's the there's been a lot of discourse about the fact that his models all have their eyes closed, uh, which ironically, again, much like dropping a hand in the urn, it wasn't something that he did intentionally. It was purely because when he makes the busts, he has to wrap people up in plaster and they can't keep their eyes open. So their eyes were closed. But then um, <laughs> over time, it kind of gained this additional meaning and people saw them as death masks. They saw them as um, <laughs> people kind of asleep, or, or they were they were refusing to, to kind of engage, or something like that. But I felt that it was almost like they were kind of peaceful, that they were um, they were meditating. And he's written he's written about <clears throat> how they, I guess, again, he's kind of retconned it and said 
they've closed their eyes because they're imagining a, a, a spiritual space within themselves rather than the the space outside. And people have linked it with things like cultural stereotyping, the experience of being a a Chinese migrant in Australia. Mm. Um, and I felt that there was that there wasn't there was in fact that um, that tension between the exterior, the exterior surface of the busts and the kind of implied interior, the the space within, which I mean, I felt the closed eyes made them even more human in a way, because it seems to send, it seemed to imply that there was something in there that you couldn't quite see, that there was some kind of experience that they were withholding in a way or that they were keeping to themselves. Um, and that we can um, we can look at them through the lens of the the motifs that were applied on them and the material, but we'll never quite have the the access to that inner world that they're maintaining. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I feel that's that's a good, or for me, it was a good way to think about his relation to China and his relation to Chinese culture, between how it existed in his mind and how it existed in China, but also how it existed through other people's perspectives. And what they expected to see, and the kind of China that they expected to find, and how all those different things were kind of linked, but also working in tension with each other, um, which comes out as well in, in Sinying's work in the chapter. But yeah, that mm -hmm. would be the, the one I'd highlight would be his his first ten busts. <laughs> Fabulous! I love that um, story about the the closing of the eyes and <laughs> what it highlights there about why you know understanding maybe you know how things are made. <laughs> Mm, and thinking mm. about that, thinking about practice and making um, as, you know, informing um, the result. Um, I love that. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that takes us, though, actually beautifully thinking about yeah, making and meaning and the importance of practice and the medium of porcelain itself um, into chapter four, which looks at how artists play with the visual and tactile appeal of porcelain. Um, and you talk about how this is particularly important in pieces that might seem to lack um, conceptual substance. So, for example, um, the one that most jumps out to me is, you know, Bowl of Pearls by Ai Weiwei, which is literally a bowl of pearls. Um, <laughs> but you talk about how, you know, the real the critical thrust of these pieces comes from, at least in part, by the unique qualities of porcelain. So I'm wondering if you could just speak directly to that, you know, how and why is the medium of porcelain so important? Mm. Yeah, um, that work, Bowl of Pearls, I talk about how it was part of a, a, a sort of a quasi-series of works that Ai Weiwei made between, I think, 2004 and 2007. Is this so, eye, eye light? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, what has been termed <laughs> eye light, which was sort of a, a phrase that, yeah, made me think about how those pieces have been seen um, as really superficial because people mm. viewed them through the lens of things like sunflower seeds, which was so grandiose and so uh, monumental. I mean, it was a you know Unilever installation in, in the turbine hall that was huge. Um, and it kind of encompassed people. And they looked on these ones, which were... Yeah, the bowl of pearls, the um, the oil spills, which are essentially mm. just pieces of porcelain glazed with a really glossy black to, to shape almost like puddles of oil. Um, other ones too, things like oh, watermelons is another one, mm. which is porcelain watermelons. Uh, and then I linked them in my mind, or, or other people have linked them too, with Liu Jianghua's works that he created in the 90s and the early 2000s, um, games and obsessive memories, mm. which are very divisive for quite obvious reasons. When you look at the works, they're these, these, um, uh, behead, I guess, beheaded or um, mm. uh, decapitated porcelain women uh, in Chipao dresses or Chongsam dresses, positioned in these quite overtly sexual ways on plates, almost like they're being served up. And again, mm. it's a work that's been, that's had a lot of uh, critical discourse around it. But again, a work that's been accused of this this superficiality or this apparent lack of substance. And I felt that that was something that, um, I mean, I felt that had a lot of substance, but yeah, it was, it was in the material. It was in the medium itself. So people seem to think that there should be some, some explicit content or some kind of something behind the material that was, that was hidden or that would jump out or um, some signal about what it was about. But I felt with things like bowl of pearls, it was more about just, um, kind of letting yourself experience it as as a conjunction of different materials. So thinking about the associations of things like pearls, the association of porcelain, 
um, the association of a mass of pearls, the fact that they were uh, freshwater pearls as well, mm. and they were all slightly damaged, um, which he's spoken about and others have spoken about as linking with uh, the bubble around Chinese contemporary art and the tension between the appearances of um, success and wealth and and all this um, depth and then the reality of it being something of a bit of a superficial experience. So it was almost like he was harnessing that superficiality or that sense of the surface as a critique of that within mm. itself. So it was it was like a like a self-referential statement in a way. The same with things like watermelon and oil spill, which can link with the politics of oil, they can link with kind of food scarcity or um excess and deprivation and all these different things and these quite simple statements of yeah i light i guess um which which can also on the other hand then be viewed as just quite fun uh experiments with the material and experiments with what you can do with it so which is again a, a perfectly valid experience of the works and part of the work itself and that links too with Hua's games and obsessive memories that i talk about in the same chapter where there's this they were presented very much as um playthings as kind of mm. uh, frivolous very playful, slightly misogynistic um, take on uh, uh, sexuality and take on um, the objectification of women. He linked it with the objectification again of Chinese contemporary art and that that sense that Chinese artists were kind of serving themselves up as a dish to be consumed mm. by the world. Um, and that's linked often with, with, with women or Chinese identity is linked a lot with femininity and ideas of the gaze and things like that. But there was, um, yeah, there was something, when I was reading the critical uh, engagement with it, mostly by men, well, all by men, I think, um, it was yeah, very uh, uh, unsettling, some of the things that were kind of written about um, how people were engaging with the work. But it was also, in addition to being unsettling, it was fascinating to read about how linked it was with that material, with the, mm. the sense that it was glossy and uh, luxurious and luscious, and it was something they wanted to touch, and it was something they could hold in their hands, um, an ornament that they could put on the shelf. And then again, that, to my mind, spoke to not only to aspects of Liu Zhenghua's personal past and his experience of the Cultural Revolution, among other things, and the um, repression of sexuality during that decade, and the, the I guess the, the psychosocial links between things like cheapow dresses and repressed sexuality and violence, but it also spoke to, um, yeah, superficiality and materiality and how sometimes the most uh, immediate and visual and tactile uh, impressions of works of art can be the most meaningful in terms of what they can tell us about how it links with some of these contexts. Mm -hmm. Here again, it's a, it's a beautiful reading that you present um, in this chapter as a way of, yeah, think really thinking with these pieces and thinking, of yeah, as you were talking about, you know what it what it means to want to hold them, or what it, what mm. is it about the porcelain that the porcelain in its you know qualities as porcelain that adds to that? But I should say on the on the point of you know the visual, um, there are lots of beautiful images in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I would be um, not not doing your book justice if I did not mention that. Um, so with the artwork you were talking about in particular, the 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 headless women <laughs> sticking mm. up with the right word um there's lots of beautiful photographs of them um in addition to beautiful photographs of a lot of the other um artworks that you talk about in this book so i just want to mark that <laughs> for listeners <laughs> even though this is an audio format um there's a lot in this um for the visual as well mm. but with this we we come to the end of your book and the end of our conversation um so now that you are finished with this project, um, you know, which you, as we, as we talked about, um, has been, you know, on your mind, I'm sure, for a long period of time, um, and has changed along the way. What are you working on now? What is inspiring you at the moment? So I've been, I've been delving more into that uh, connection that I, I guess I've been fascinated with for a long time between materials and self and mm. identity. And I'm working on uh, an edited collection that's... Um, under contract with Bloomsbury for publication next year, hmm. which is called Material Selves, Object Biographies and Identities in Motion. Uh, and I'm writing a chapter for it about porcelain. 
not so much about contemporary artists who use porcelain, but looking back to some of the history of it. So thinking about um, in Europe, across Europe and different countries where there would be kind of massed displays of porcelain as well as uh, a practice of mounting porcelain and what mm. that meant in terms of the material engagement with porcelain and the material engagement between the self and the other and how that was a way in which people uh, formed their identities, which links to the purpose of the book as a whole, which was to think about um, both the methodology of object biography, which is mm. something that's been fascinating to me and which is, is very much involved in New Export China, thinking about the um, the lives of the works that I consider and how they link with the lives of the artists, the way they've moved from production to um, circulation to display mm. to collection and the different kind of phases they move through. But expanding that methodology to think more about not just object biography, but how objects link with people and, I guess, subjects to create biography or to create identity. So how um, uh, bringing in some new materialist ideas and thinking about object-centered uh, ways of thinking about agency. So very much pushing some of those things I've explored in the past of the connections between people and things, um, uh, things that, that that series like ASEAN's China, China Bust very much got me thinking about was how sometimes an object can seem almost human, a work of art can seem almost like a kind of analog of the person that it represents, but then at the same time, how it affects the identity of that person. So that's the, yeah, the project I'm working on at the moment. And it's going to be a, a wonderful collection of different perspectives on those ideas from across the world by um, various scholars. Fascinating. Well, my very best of luck with that. Um, as someone who's very interested in object-centered um, anythings, um, <laughs> so it's like, it'll be a, a great read. Um, so best of luck with that. And thank you very much again for, you know, taking the time to talk with me about this book. No worries. That was great. Thanks.